heads up, a little warning. This is one of the probably, uh, I guess, a passage on marriage that is oftentimes misunderstood, misinterpreted. I've heard some, some wild things come out of this text. So, um, so let's start chapter 3 and verse 1. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy woman of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as, your, as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will be hindered in your prayers. Now, you'll notice that Peter starts off by saying wives in the same way. What is he referring to? He's referring to what he began uh, back in chapter 2. And this is the third relationship that Paul is going to describe that uses this word submit. Now, this word submit is probably one of the most misunderstood words by Christians and certainly by the unbelieving world. We have tacked all kinds of things onto this world that are absolutely unbiblical. And so what Peter's going to illustrate is the principle that you and I, from the very beginning, he says, you and I are strangers. We are exiles in this world. We, as, as a part of God's kingdom, we are here to represent God's kingdom and while we're here on this earth, earth is not our home, right? We're passing through. God's got something greater for us and ahead. Uh, but while we're here, we have this tremendous opportunity to have influence over the hearts and lives of people who are outside of the kingdom, right? We want to be able to give to them the reason for the hope that is within us. What is it that makes our lives distinctly different than their lives? Why is it that we're happier in our marriages than they are? Why is it that we're getting along a little better? It's not that your marriage is always happy. Stop trying to make heaven on earth. Heaven's not on earth. There's no perfect partners in marriage because you both come in with big eyes, big sinners, and you need to become little eyes, uh, little sinners, so that you submit to one another as in reverence to the Lord. So the question is, in this response of difficult relationships where we might experience unjust treatment, like how can we surrender to the authority of God and maintain our integrity with maximum influence upon the relationships that can, you know, in any relationship you can experience hardship, you can experience misunderstanding, you can experience injustice. So Peter is tackling this question, hey, when it comes to our submission to God's governing authorities over us, all right, our civil government. How do we respond to that? When it comes to a, a, a boss-employee relationship, how do we respond to that un, unjust boss, the one who's, you know, just not really that good of a boss and you have to put up with him regardless, all right? How do we have integrity and influence in that relationship? The third relationship he hits on is that of marriage. Now, in this passage, he's talking to women who have an unbelieving husband, but the principles that Peter gives to us in this passage 
goes along with if you're both saved or if you're, you know, if you have an unbelieving spouse or maybe you have a spouse who's saved, but they're living like a carnal Christian, right? They're saved, but they're not really following the Lord. Jesus isn't really the center of their life. He's not really, they're not really living out the overflow of that relationship. They're very carnal as, you know, saved, but living like an unbeliever. How do we respond? Why is this important? Because God established the marriage relationship to carry out his kingdom agenda. That's why it is important. And I believe, and I put this on your outline, that a healthy home is a very powerful witness to the world, especially in our day and time. I did not say a perfect home. There are no perfect homes. There are no perfect parents. Again, there's no perfect marriage partner. Marriages work. And the minute you stop working at it, it stops working for you. So we always are working on the relationship. What Peter does is gives us some guidelines on how we can best accomplish that task so that as we go through seasons in marriage, because some of the seasons are valleys, some of them are mountaintops, everything in between, how can we have a healthy relationship that says to the world, hey, this couple has something that I want. I mean, I see something in this relationship. I'd love my relationship with my spouse to be the exact same way. And so what, what he does is he gives us the biblical roles for husbands and wives. The biblical roles. Here's what God says. If you, will, if you will run your lane, your role in this relationship, God will bring forth a healthy relationship. But if I choose to go outside of my boundaries, probably not going to happen. There's going to be a lot of dysfunction in the family. There's going to be a lot of things that are just kind of messed up. And so this is built around this word submit. So the word submit, again, means to place oneself voluntarily under the authority of someone. Now, this is probably the only verse most men know. Hey, you're my wife. You're supposed to submit to me. Well, let me remind you of some things. Uh, number one, it's not just for wives. It's for you too. All right, so here's what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5. Submit to one another, speaking to husband and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, catch that. We're both under the authority. Men are supposed to submit themselves under the authority and the leadership of Jesus so that we love our wives just as Christ loved the church, which was sacrificially. And women are to submit themselves under the authority of their husbands. Not in any way are you inferior to your husband. And then children are to su submit themselves under the authority of their parents. Now, let me ask you a question. Do children always do that? No. Eh. Do wives always do that? Eh. Do husbands always do this? Yeah. Eh. <laughs> Jimmy's lying already in church, down front. So when husbands give themselves sacrificially, you'll notice it says that we are to do this out of reverence for Christ. So when a husband sacrificially loves his wife as Christ loved the church, something grows out of that in that relationship, right? He meets her deepest marital need for security, which is how she spells love. When women submit to the authority of their husband, you meet his deepest need, which is respect. Love and respect are two vital key words in a marriage relationship. Love and respect. And so when a woman fulfills her, her, her role, it all begins to work together. But notice he says he is submitting himself, she's submitting herself 
under the authority of Jesus, out of reverence for him, not for one another. And so um, what Peter does in this passage is he gives some wise counsel to the wives, and he gives some very strong commands to the men. So I'm going to kind of balance this out over I'm a little on the heavy side on the wives simply because there's more passages there, but I'm going to be an equal opportunist. I'm going to offend men also. So I I have to admit, when Marla and I were first married, um, I wasn't uh, really thinking, I was thinking more of my happiness than I was hers, and probably vice versa, right? So in every relationship, guess what we bring into it? Baggage, all kinds of baggage. And these are things that you learn from your experiences in your own family. These are things that you picked up on with your relationships with other people outside of your families, could be extended family members, friends, uh, workplaces. We, we, we build this repertoire in, inside of ourselves that we bring into every relationship. And so when we first got married, I thought my role and responsibility, I didn't have a father that I grew up with in a home, so I had no role model as to how a man should treat his wife or really how to relate that well with, with children. So uh, when we entered into the relationship, I thought, well, you know, I go to work, I, go, I do my thing, I, uh, you know, I worked as a plumber at that time, and um, doing construction, and so I get home, I'm tired, and it's like, you know, I sit in my chair, turn on the TV, veg out, look at the newspaper, whatever it is, you know, I didn't have cell phones back then, I'm so old. Uh, so, you know, and so I, I'd like, I did my thing, and Marla comes home from work, she's in there. Uh, in the kitchen getting dinner ready, and she's not going to say, hey, do you think you could come in here and help me? Oh, no, no, no. I should have known that. It should have been a given. So if I heard cabinets slamming a little louder, pots and pans a little harder, that was my cue. Hey, get in here. I need help. But I was deaf. I didn't listen. I did. There you go. Eat my supper, do my thing, go to bed, it's all over again. You know, it's like Groundhog Day, next, same day, thing, next thing, over and over again. So um, what we did when we brought baggage into our relationship is that we didn't communicate well on top of everything else. And so now we're having all of these struggles with one another, not knowing how to navigate ourselves through those, those struggles. And so, you know, long after the tingles of, you know, the brand new freshness of your marriage goes away, all of a sudden you're faced with reality. And the question is, what are we going to do about this? And, and, and who are we going to turn to and how are we going to navigate our way through? So what I want to do from the outset, I want to talk about four um, what I call destructive husbands. You may be this husband. You may not be this husband. You may be blind to the fact that you're this husband. But the very first thing Peter says to the, to the wives is simply this, analyze your actions. How are you going to approach your husband if he fits one of these four categories? This is very, very important because there is a way that you can help your husband see himself in the mirror as God wants to, him to see his flaws and his blindness, but there's also a way you can push him away. Ladies, like it or not, men have very fragile egos. And when those egos are confronted or when they are slammed against, he will shut down like a turtle in a shell and he will just, you know, just back up and back in and you can't get him to communicate about anything. We're not great communicators anyways. That just makes us even worse. So he says in Ephesians again, 
submit to one another out of reverence for, for Christ. You would expect him to say out of reverence for Greg or out of reverence for Marla, but he says out of reverence for Christ. So let me just highlight this for a moment. The Savior who came out of heaven, down to earth, and died for you, all right, in light of all that he has done for you, he says, I want you to show reverence and respect and submit to your spouse. Spouse, that is a very powerful concept, and here's why. Let's suppose you have a conversation with God, and your conversation goes like this for me. It's like, God, you know, I'm so grateful for everything you've done with, for me and through me. Man, I was a, just a jerk, and you've made me a little less of a jerk, and you've been changing my heart and my life over the last several years. I'm so grateful that you've forgiven me all of my sins, past, present, and future. You've clothed me in the righteousness of Jesus. You've made me, helped me to become what I could have never become on my own. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. But it is something that you did out of your mercy and your grace and your love for me. Now, God says, I want you and you say, you know, I'm so grateful, Lord, for all that you've done for me. How can I show my gratitude? And if you listen real closely, God may say something like this to you. Well, here's what I want you to do, Greg. I want you to take all of your passion. I want you to take all of your gratitude. I want you to take all of your energy, emotion. And I want you to shower every single bit of that upon your wife and lover like Christ loved the church. What if you have a husband who doesn't want to do that or won't do it or can't because he's unsaved? So what are the destructive habits or destructive kinds of husbands? And I'm going to give you four Old Testament kings to draw this out of, and I'm not going to drill down on how this develops. So I'm, I'm saving that for a series I'm going to do in the fall uh, on the family. So, uh, but I do want to, because here's the thing. In each of the Old Testament kings... If they had an unrighteous, rebellious attitude, it affected not only them, but their kingdom. If they had a righteous attitude that was submitted to God, that also affected the king and the kingdom. My point is simply this. Husbands, if you are one of these destructive types of husbands, it not only affects you, but it affects your entire family. And it may be that your wife sees this and is suffering under this, so ladies, the question is, how do I approach that? How do I confront that in my husband in a way that I am having God working alongside of me rather than against me? That makes sense? So I'm going to touch on these real quick. Number one is the dominant husband. This is out of King Rehoboam. King Solomon was king for 40 years, right? So under his reign, Israel prospered like they had hardly ever prospered before. After his death, his son Rehoboam took the throne. Now, Rehoboam, um, when he took the throne, Solomon did all kinds of building projects. He put a lot of workload on the people and heavy taxes. Rehoboam wanted to continue that. And so he sought counsel from the wiser counselors who were under King Solomon, and they said, you don't want to do that. We've already taxed the people enough. They're growing weary. And then Rehoboam, rather than listening to the wise counsel of the, 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 the older counselors in Israel, he goes to his younger friends and says, hey, what do you guys think? Man, well, let's just tax them more. Uh, let's just tax the daylights out of them and work as hard as we can. Guess who Rehoboam listened to? Not the wise counselors. He listened to the foolish counselors. And so what Rehoboam made a decision that day is, listen, I'm going to dominate my people. I don't care what they want. I don't care what condition they're in. I, it's like, I'm, I speak it, you're going to do it. 
I'm controlling everything. And he's, guess what? That's exactly what he did. You know what happened? The people rebelled. And 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel, they got themselves a new king called Jeroboam, and Rehoboam was only left with two of those tribes. This is the problem with the dominant kind of husband. And the, the, the moral of this historical event is that a servant's heart is the most important quality of leadership. A dominant husband is one who wants to dominate everything about, the, about his, his wife, his children. I mean, this is the kind of guy who say, listen, uh, this is what you can and can't do. These are the friends you can't have, can't have. Uh, here's my schedule for you. Here's what you can't spend, what you can't spend. I mean, he wants to dominate every single aspect of his wife's life and every single aspect of his children's lives. The problem is the dominant husband is a horrible relationship builder, and whenever you have rules without relationships, it always ends up the same. It ends up in rebellion. And everyone's rebelling against your authority, whether they, whether they were, you know, articulate or not, because if, if a, most dominant husbands are abusive, they can be verbally abusive, they can be intimidating, they use intimidation to their favor, and so this might be the kind of husband you have. And maybe this is the kind of, this, this might be the kind of home you grew up in. And so some of that domination maybe has crept into your own heart. Listen, domination and authority does not work, whether it's in the government or a boss or a husband or a father. It just doesn't. Here's the second one, and that is a passive husband. The worst king probably Israel ever had was King Ahab, one of the most passive husbands ever. He had a very uh, domineering wife named Jezebel, and Ahab just caved to her all the time. He even began worshiping her gods. And so after marrying her, Ahab began to, you know, he was the king, but she was actually the boss, and he was just the passive leader, and it looked like he was in control, but he wasn't really in control. Jezebel was in control, and she's terrorizing everybody, and she's really destroying the nation in the process. So passive husbands, they seem very sweet to their wives at first, but um, there's more that's beneath the surface. Because later on, they'll drive you crazy because one of the needs of women is to have somebody who's going to help lead, and he just won't do it, right? He's going to just usurp all the responsibility over onto you. And this happens in churches all the time where husband's like, I'm not going to go to church. You want to take kids to church? You take them to church. And so then the father's absent from the church, and the mother's having to pick up the load of responsibility that should have been upon her husband, but he is refusing to do that. Now, if you're a natural domineering woman at first a passive husband looks very very intriguing because man I can control this guy but over time that sours and it sours pretty quickly and we'll talk about that later and so whether it's finances spiritual lives children romance whatever this guy just just won't do it and it destroys your sense of security as well as your respect that you may or may not have had for your husband at one time or another. Here's the third one, an immoral husband, King David. Everybody knows the story about David and Bathsheba, right? If you don't, uh, you'll go to 1 Samuel, you can, you can read about that. But so basically, King David is on the top of his balcony. He should have been in war, but he wasn't. He sees Bathsheba bathing on her rooftop, summons her to himself, and then he has his way with her. She ends up pregnant. Well, she's got a husband. Her, his name is Uriah. He's one of King David's generals. So David has to cover up the fact that now Bathsheba's pregnant. So either A, 
he calls Uriah off the battlefield, either A, David says, this is what I've done with your wife, will you please forgive me? And then, you know, uh, King Uriah, or General Uriah, who knows how he's going to respond? Is he going to try to kill David? Is he going, yeah, or is he going to quit as his general? Or David can cover it all up, right? And so he chooses the cover up by sending Uriah out onto the battlefield and ensures that he dies on that battlefield so David can then live out the big cover up at least for a while until God sends a prophet named Nathan who confronts his actions and says, David, you are the guy who's done this and God sears the, just pricks the conscience of David and he, he just has to fold and crumble about what he's done. Listen, Immorality is a growing, growing industry in our society. All kinds of sexual immorality are available to you 24-7 if you own a cell phone. Pornography is off the charts. It's a $15 billion industry, and there are a lot of men, not just men, but a lot of men who are hooked on porn, and their wives do not know anything about it. They hide it. They conceal it, but you know it, and you cannot compartmentalize your life and have your mind dwelling on this kind of stuff and not having it impact every aspect of your life with your spouse. So the question is, how's that going, right? So let's say that you're getting married and your fiance asks you about this question. Hey, do you have a porn problem? What are you going to say to her? You're going to confess and say, yes, I do. And she will say, well, either you get some help or we're not getting married, or you can lie to her like David, right? You can say, no, no, I don't have a problem. So now you're beginning your relationship built on the foundation of deception, which is a horrible way to start a relationship. You want to know why most women have affairs? It's not because they're after the sex. They just want somebody to pay attention to them and have meaningful conversation because oftentimes men who are hooked on pornography will do neither of those. This is why the Bible warns us to be careful about, um, you know, when, when we into, enter into a um, relationship. So here's the distracted husband, King Solomon. Solomon was wise. God gave him the wisdom. He was humbled and blessed by the Lord. Unfortunately, he had 700 wives, 300 concubines, kept him occupied that way. And then he was big into building programs. And he just built, 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 built. And he was always distracted. He didn't have relationships with those women, women other than maybe sexual relationships. He had no time for intimacy with any of them. He was really into building projects. So all of his life he spent distracted. And he missed out on the two fundamental things he needed the most, an intimate walk with God and an intimate relationship with a woman. And so this is the way he lived his life. And so as men, we can get so distracted. I got distracted um, where there's just no time, right? You are home, but you're not really home. Your mind's a million miles away. You're distracted by all kinds of things. I live this way. My wife had to confront me on this. The, the downside for her was a lot of my preoccupation, distraction came from the church. She says, the church has become your mistress. How do I fight against God? That's a fair question. That's a legitimate question. 
And so we can get wrapped up in hobbies and all kinds of things that distract us, recreation, entertainment, and as a result, your wife may try to nag you to get your attention, but over time, your non-responsiveness just drives her away into the arms of somebody else who will pay attention to her and who will give her meaningful conversation, and that's what sparks the, the affair. Are we catching on? The Bible says to us, be very, very careful before you marry somebody, you need to know if you're compatible. More than just looks, because that tends to be what we go after early. It's like, you know, but dude, he's so good looking. He's got a six pack. But can, can I tell you, in 25, 30 years, he'll have a keg. He'll be bald and look like a baby all over again, right? Okay? Just, I'm sorry. It's just what happens, you know. The chest goes into the stomach and baldness on the head. The only place he can grow hair anymore is out his ears and nose. It's just the way it is. Guys, uh, listen, you marry your wife. Uh, She's she's just got a beautiful body, a great look. And after she shoves a few children out, everything changes, okay? Just everything changes. Uh, So what God says is, listen, make sure you're compatible. It's more than just looks. It's are you compatible in your walk with the Lord? Are you compatible in morals and values? Just because a guy starts coming to church with you because he's trying to woo you over into a relationship doesn't mean he's actually walking with Jesus, okay? Just be aware of that. Every single time I've had to do counseling and these traits that come up that the wives mention about their husbands, I say to them, listen, when you guys were dating, when you were engaged, did you not see these things? Listen, yes, I did, but I thought I could change him. How's that working for you? You don't have the power to change him. You can influence him, but you can't change him. That's the work of God. Only the Holy Spirit can change a person's life, okay? What you want to do is work in cooperation with God to help that happen. So he uses this word submit that has to do with accomplishing God's divine agenda. Listen, Jesus submitted to the Father to accomplish his divine plan. And what Peter is saying, hey, his wives, you can submit to your husband. And part of submitting means that you have to respect him. Men need respect. Now, here's what happened to my wife and I. When God said to my wife, and we were having our marital problems, and we we're about on the brink of divorce, and, and God spoke to me very clearly, hey, Greg, you're not loving your wife like Christ loved the church. Get your act together. Man up and get it done. The Lord said to my wife, hey, you need to respect Greg. To which she said, she'll tell you, I, he does not deserve my respect. And God said back to her, I didn't ask you if he deserved it. I said to give it to him. Because respect is so, so important to a man. And so um, this is why he gives the example down here about Sarah and Abraham. I mean, on a couple occasions, what did Abraham do with Sarah? He tried to pass her off as his sisters to some kings who are now falling in love with her and wanting to put, put her in a, as a part of their harem. And God has to come in and rescue them out, out of these kings' hands by, you know, taking on two uh, kingdoms. And so Abraham was not perfect But Sarah chose, in spite of his imperfection, to reverence him, to respect him, because he knew this would open up the, she knew this would open up the gateway for God to begin working in her husband's life. And notice he says, um, back up in verse 2 and 3, hey, do this without words. Now, please listen to me. This does not mean you don't speak, ladies, okay? You need to have conversations with your husband. 
The question is, how, what kind of conversations are you having? Like, if you're just mad and frustrated, and you're just going to criticize, and you're going to be his conscience, and you're going to put him in his place, and you're going to point out all of his bad features, I'm telling you, if you nag and condescend and have critical conversations, he will shut down on you. But there are ways to have conversations with him that are very open and that are fruitful in the conversation. And he says you do this out of what? Purity and reverence with a godly attitude, drawing this unbelieving husband perhaps to Christ. The way you don't draw an unbelieving husband to Christ is by pinning Bible verses on his pillowcases and making him listen to my sermons and all those kinds of things that he's going to blow you off. But if he sees something in you that is unique and different, because this really is the term of being a helper, right? The term helper is used all the way back in the book of Genesis. It doesn't mean that you have been created by God to do all the cooking and the cleaning and the laundry and taking care of the kids. Doesn't mean that at all. A helper, listen, your, husband's ha- your husband has a lot of blind spots. And your, your role as a helper is to help him discover what it is that God wants to do through him. And there are ways you can help that. For example, you may be way better than your husband at finances. Guess what? Do the finances. He may be way better at you than cooking. You may not even be able to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I don't know. Let him do the cooking. All all Peter is saying is look for the avenues that you can travel to help your husband fulfill the divine calling God has placed upon his life because one day God will hold him responsible for that calling regardless of how he treats you. It is all going to come to a head one day. And let me just slot this in. I got to move rapidly. Abuse. There is nothing, nowhere, anything in the Bible that expects you as a wife to suffer under the abuse of your husband. You need to get out. You need to separate. I didn't say you had to divorce, but you need to separate until your husband shows that he is actually working on this, that something's actually changing before you even take a chance to going back. There's all kinds of abuse. There's physical, there's mental, there's verbal, there's sexual, all kinds of abuse. I don't have time to go into all that, but I'm just saying God doesn't expect you to endure that uh, under the leadership of your husband. He needs help. Number two, check your attitude. When Paul Paul says, do not wear jewelry or nice clothes or fix your hair. Okay, he's not telling you, (laughs) he's not telling you not to do those things. Here's his whole point, is that you can look really good on the outside, and that's a wonderful thing, all right? Wonderful thing. It is where we get the word cosmetic from cosmos, means bringing order out of chaos, all right? So... Ladies, when you wear makeup, you're bringing order out of chaos. I told you I'd offend you. Uh, what, God is, what, what he's saying is this. Listen, you can look beautiful on the outside, but if your heart is full of anger and bitterness and resentment against your husband, it's not going to go well. He says you need to have the same inner beauty as you're working on the outer beauty. He says unfading beauty and a gentle, quiet spirit, God says, is what? Of great, it is of great worth. See, we tend to focus on our spouse's 
weaknesses rather than their strengths. I'm just here to say that if, ladies, if you want to make traction with your husband, I know he's got weaknesses. I know he's maybe he's got several of these, you know, uh, destructive husband habits. I'm telling you, you're not going to change him by confronting all of them. Yes, you need to have conversations, but you have to do it in the right and respectful way. And if you do that, God says it's a great worth and I can do a work in their life. So instead of just focusing on his negative things, how about if you also focus upon his positive qualities? Why not list those out? And why not focus on those? Because when you replace condemnation and criticism with words of affirmation, something inside of you fundamentally begins to change. And when you change, it affects him. And when he changes, ladies, it'll affect you. This is just the way it is. It's the way relationships are built. I'm just saying you're opening up, the, you are releasing the Holy Spirit of God into the heart and the life of your husband to begin doing a work that you cannot do, but he can do a whole lot better. Number three is evaluate your attention. In other words, um, notice he uses the word fear. <laughs> it says, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. What is this fear referring to? The wife who says, well, okay, this is all fine and well, Greg, but what if I do all this and he just takes advantage of me and he never changes and nothing's ever different? Now what do I do? Don't let that fear drive you. I'm telling you, if you honor God, he will honor you in return. This is what the whole example that he's giving here about Sarah and Abraham. When Sarah honored her role, God honored her honoring that role and went to work on Abraham and vice versa. This is the way God operates. This is the releasing of the Holy Spirit's power into the heart and the life of somebody. So now let's come to husbands for a moment. Here's what he says. In essence, husbands, I want you to love your wife, all right, as Christ loved the church. Now, the word love gets all fuzzy because we love pizza and we love ribs and we love steak and we love our dogs and we love our wives, right? So, in the Greek, um, because it's very specific language, philo is a, a friendship love. Eros is a sexual love. But the love that he uses here to us husbands is agape love, which is a sacrificial love. It's the love that God expresses. It is a verb. Watch this, guys. It is something you do regardless of how you feel and regardless of how your wife responds to you. If you love her sacrificially and you get the cold shoulder, you keep loving her sacrificially. Because one of the things I said to my wife when we were having our problems is, I'm, listen, I'm going to love you as Christ loved the church to the best of my ability. And if anybody's going to leave this relationship, it's not going to be me. If you want to walk out, you can walk out. But I'm not leaving. I'm, 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 in, it, I'm in it for the long haul. And so I had to start, re listen, God had to do a work on me, right? He had to start changing me from the inside out because we would have conversations about, you know, the, our trouble spots and I would promise, Martin, you know, it's all going to change. I'll make it different. It'll be different in the future. I'll do this, this, and this. And what happens when I, there was no follow through with that? Well, I just, 
well, what's the use, right? Why, why, would, why would we have another conversation? You're going to make all these promises you're not going to keep. So what does sacrificial love do? Sacrificial love makes sure you follow through with what it is that you say without any expectation or expectation and demand for anything in return. So here are four kinds of destructive wives. The dominant wife, uh, the dominant personality who will marry a passive man whom she, again, wants to control and but over time, what she does is she loses respect for her husband, right? Because he's just too passive. She can't get him to do anything. I've never met a woman who respected a man she could control, ever, in counseling or any other way. For her innermost soul sw- swells a basic need to disrespect her husband, to find fault with him. And I've never met a man who truly loved a woman who, contr- who controlled him. Because from him, in his inner soul, again, the basic need to separate, separate from his wife is to ignore her. He'll just find significance somewhere else. He'll just travel, you know, whatever it is to occupy his time. I, I've heard more guys on the golf course, well, you know, my wife and I, we've had troubles and we've divorced and, you know, and so, you know, well, well, what have you been doing? Well, I don't know what's, what's, what the problem is because... I mean, I, I know I play softball four nights a week and golf the other three, but I, I don't get it, man. I don't know what more she wants from me. I bring home a paycheck, right? So, foolish man. The enabler wife, she seems to be magnet for the bad boys. <laughs> and you enable their bad behavior. Wrong choice. He ain't going to get any better, I'm telling you. If you're an enabler, your husband is not going to get any better. Distracted wife. You try to reach out to your husband, share how you're feeling, time spent away from home, not being present while he's at home. And again, he makes the promises, and, but he never seems to change, never seems to follow through. So what? You learn how to get busy also. Here's what happens in relationships. Because guys are conquerors. I don't know if you realize this, ladies, but once we've married you, we've conquered you. So now what guys do is look at the fall, how God addressed Adam and Eve. Here's what, here's what he said. He said, Eve... You're going to spend your life trying to dominate your husband. You're going to try to, 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 to rule over him. You know what he's going to do? He's going to spend his time trying to work. I mean, he's going to find his self-esteem in his work. He's going to go off and do his thing and work. And then children come along, and then women find their satisfaction in raising their kids. And so you've got a husband focusing on his career. You've got a, a wife that may be focusing on a career and raising kids, and now their lives are going like this. You know when the second most Predominant time for divorce, empty nest, because they've been growing like this for years. Now, all of a sudden, the kids are gone. Nobody's in the house, but the husband and wife, they don't even know each other anymore. And so much bad blood and bad water has passed between them, they just can't seem to bridge the gap. And so distraction will do that. There's the emotion-motivated wife who is is motivated by primarily fears and feelings that do not make for a good relationship. So we are called, guys, to love our wives. We can't wait until she gets everything right. Just as a wife is to respect her husband, even when he doesn't have it all together, we are to stay with our wives, meeting their needs and loving them as Christ loved the church. Number two is, he says, to know your wife's needs. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers. Be I'm sorry, verse 7. Husbands in the same way. Be considered to your, as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you 
of the, of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Guys, do you know what the top four needs of your wife is? Have you even ever asked her? Hey, honey, what's your top four needs? Here's what I love about women. They have a built-in marriage manual, okay? They do. I can ask any woman in this congregation who's married, tell me how your relationship's going with your husband. She'll write me pages. I ask a man that same question. Well, I don't know. She's still here. I guess we're going good. She hadn't left me yet. That's about as deep as we go. And we never really figure out what what are her needs. She can tell you what her needs are. I'm going to give you four big ones. Here's number one is the need for security. Men spell security money. A wife spells security. I'm number one in your life, right? I want to know that I am the number one significant relationship in your life as your wife. And guys, you can destroy this really quickly. Like your wife can be on to you about painting a bedroom and you put her off and you put her off. And finally, she's so frustrated, she calls a painter and says, I'm going to tell you what, I just called a painter and this is going to cost you a thousand bucks to get this thing painted. And you're going to go all ticked off. So, no, no, cancel him. I'm telling you next weekend, I'll do it. Honey, I love you so much. I'll do it. And so she cancels the painter. Next weekend rolls around. You're going to, you got the paint. You got the buckets. You're out ready to go. And all of a sudden, your buddy calls you up and say, hey, how about coming over and playing pickleball with me? And you're out the door. You destroyed her sense of security just like that. See, security is how she spells love. Remember what her greatest need is? She needs love. You need respect, she needs love. Are we tracking? Here's the second one, affection. Now, here's another one. We get this one wrong, guys. When she says, what I mean by affection is not sex. Okay? You have that need, she has that need. Affection means she might just say, honey, just, just sit and hold me. Let me cry. Let me pour out my heart. Let me just, you know, this is how she de- deals with stress. And, so, and when my wife would come home and just cry, and I'm like, honey, what is wrong? I, I, she's stressed. She's just dealing with stuff, and she needs to get out. And, and see, I jumped into the mode of, well, let me fix you. <laughs> I can fix you, honey. I'm a psychology major. I can fix you. To which she would say, I don't need fix. Just hold me. Let me go. Let me spill it out. That's what I mean by um, affection, intimate conversation. Intimate conversation. Okay, guys, we're just not great at conversation, all right? You go to, you know, you hang out with men. We pretty much, we're pretty surface. You know, we talk about our jobs, maybe, you know, sports, you know, all those kinds of surfacey things. You go to women's events, and they're all like, they got the handkerchiefs out. They're crying. You know, because they're, so when my wife, you know, when my mother would call me when we lived out of state for so long, she'd say, well, what did your mom have to say? And I'd say, well, not much. And <laughs> now she wants to blow by blow, moment by moment, tell me what my mother said, what was the conversation, or if I would ask my wife a question about a book she's reading, I wanted the cliff notes. She's going to tell me all, everything about the book for, you know, 15, 20 minutes or however long that's going to go. Because this is just the way they communicate and they need that level of intimate communication and you would be wise as a husband to engage in it. And the last one is leadership. She really does want you to lead. She wants you to lead the family and a in a very uh, special way. I mean, she doesn't want the shoulder all of that on herself and she shouldn't be shouldering that. God has given you a lane to run in, guys. You need to man up and run in the lane. 
Number three is to honor your wife. What does it mean to honor your wife? It means to assign her a place of honor in your life. If you want to be the true kingdom king, you better treat her like the true kingdom queen. That's just one amen anyway. So, um, in other words, you want to compliment your wives in public. You want to affirm her gifts, her talents, her abilities and accomplishments. You want to declare your, declare your appreciation for all that she does. This would include doing something very special for her time from time other than on her birthday or your anniversary. All right, you honor her in front of others because she is special. She is unique. She is the helpmate that God has given to you to help make you a better man. And when it's all said and done, who did God go to when Eve sinned in the garden? He went to Adam. It was his responsibility. It was his lack of leadership that helped get them there. Guys, God is going to hold you responsible as to the type of leadership you have provided your family. And so a promise to both the husband and wife is simply this, that your prayers will not be hindered. Listen, you can use your power to coerce, and you may get what you want from your spouse for a time being, but you're going to hinder your prayer. And well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to squelch the Holy Spirit from doing a work that he desires to do in a way that only he can do it. So when you stop, again, working on your marriage, your marriage stops working for you. Here's the wisest thing ever, anybody ever told me. Find a marriage that you think you want and go talk to that couple and find out what they did to get there. They'll give you some of the purest wisdom that you'll ever, ever receive from somebody else that will help you navigate to a healthy relationship and a healthy marriage is a tremendously powerful, powerful testimony about what the Lord can do in the hearts and lives of two people who have come together as husband and wives and it is a huge, huge testimony to what the Lord can do in their lives. God will open up multiple, multiple opportunities for you to speak into the lives of couples who are hurting and who are struggling in their own relationship. God will provide multiple opportunities that you can speak into them, the wisdom that you've learned from the Lord. So let's pray. And so in light of of all of this, this is a lot of information I know, and it's, it's, it's a lot to receive. So my question for you simply is this, what is your, what is your next step? If you're here today and you're married and there's just, you just know there's issues in the relationship, what's your next step? Are you just going to hope it all goes away? Are you just going to hope it's going to fix itself? How's that working for you, as Dr. Phil would say? It's not working well because it's never going to work. There are things that you must do. And so I would always say to you, start with the Lord, right? Take this passage, read it, dwell on it, ask God to say, hey, what is your next step? What's your blind spot, Greg? What's your blind spot, Marla? What can we work on today or this week or this month or this year that would help our relationship to go deeper and better than it ever has before? That's the question you need to be asking yourself. And maybe you're here and you're, you have a spouse who's unbeliever. 
right? And I know how frustrating that can be because you're walking this journey by yourself and you go home and you're all ramped up about what Lord's doing in your heart and you share it with him and it's like talking to a block wall. And it's just disheartening. I get that. But if you want to open up the avenue for the Lord to work in his heart, these, these are the things that, that God has given to us in his word, his living active word that says, hey, these are some things you can do to help open that up and let God to do a work in his life. Now, there is no guarantee that because you do these things that your husband will give his life to Jesus. The Bible's not guaranteeing that, but you are giving him an opportunity to have God work on his heart as it never has before. But I'm going to tell you, when you honor the role God has given to you, God will always, always, always honor you in return. And maybe you're here this morning, your next step is to have a relationship with Jesus. You don't know how to do this stuff in your marriage because you don't have a walk with Christ. You know, there's no fundamental change happening inside of you. You don't have the Holy Spirit living in you and working in you and helping you to develop the mind of Christ and the character of Jesus, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit. I've never had a wife call me and say, man, Greg, can you help my husband? He's far too loving. He's far too kind. He's far too patient. And maybe your next step is that it's, it's a relationship with Christ, surrendering your heart to him and surrendering your life under his authority that he'd be savior of your life, the forgiver of your sins. And he would be the one who would be Lord of your life, the boss, the CEO. And I want to say this to those of you who have been divorced. That is not the unpardonable sin. You're not second-class citizen in God's kingdom. Listen, we all make huge mistakes in life, and things don't always work out the way we plan them to work out. Listen, God loves you with an incredible love. He wants to have a relationship with you. Do not let the evil one use that against you to hold you back from coming to faith in Jesus. So, Father, we just thank you for loving us and caring for us so, so much. And, Lord, we just thank you for the strength that you give to us in some of the most difficult of relationships in which we we do we just experience heartache and hardship and god we know that you have a better way and you have a better design and you want better things for us than that so i just pray that your holy spirit would speak so loudly uh, into our, our our conscience and into our our hearts this week and helping us navigate what is what is the next step that I need to take? And that, God, we would be faithful and not just praying it to you, but also putting it into practice, making the adjustments in our personal lives to see to it that we live out the roles, that we run the lane that you have given to us as husbands and wives and allow you to do a work in both of our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.